Welcome to You Hear It First, an unofficial, unfiltered history of MTV News. I'm Benjamin Way. For much of its 36 years, MTV News was where young people everywhere got their news first. And from 1996 to 2014, I had a front row seat. These are the stories behind the stories from the people who told them. This is You Hear It First. This week, an MTV News legend, longtime editorial director, Michael Shore. Michael's tenure at MTV News spanned three decades from the 80s to the early aughts. His first scripts were penned for original VJs, J.J. Jackson and Martha Quinn. His last four correspondents, Sway Calloway and Sujin Pak. Mike and I talked for over two hours and I didn't leave much on the cutting room floor. It's a masterclass on MTV News history loaded with details and detours from a man known as much for his paisley shirts as his killer puns. Michael talks about discovering Sun Ra in his Peabody, Massachusetts high school library, then meeting Sun Ra less than a decade later. He regales with stories about interviewing his heroes, Fela Kuti and Miles Davis, the day Kurt Cobain died and Courtney Love crashed Madonna's VMA pre-show, Tabitha Soren's Choose or Lose audition, office visits from Axl Rose and Jay-Z, Live Aid, Woodstock, and so, so many memories of our MTV News colleagues from Ted Demi and Dennis Leary to Allison Stewart and Rhonda Markowitz. Legends all. This is a glorious stream of consciousness trip through the heyday of MTV News. So sit back and settle into your headphones. This is Michael Shore. I grew up in Massachusetts. I was born in Lynn Lynn, city of sin. You don't come out the way you went in. It's like just, just north of Boston. And at the age of like two, my parents moved from Lynn to Peabody or Peabody as non-names uh-huh. would say it, which is uh, like a, another town or two north, closer to Salem, the witch city. Attended a, a prep school, St. John's Prep in Danvers, the next town over, where I sort of, A, I started writing for the school paper and I was writing record reviews. I was a kid who read Rolling Stone at home all the yeah. time and you know, stupidly had this vision of myself being like a rock critic. What a great way that'll be to make a living. Like if I knew then what I know now, oh my God. But started out writing like record reviews uh, for the school paper where I eventually became a co-editor. The St. John's Prep Library, believe it or not, is one of the first things that musically radicalized me. They had two record players with headphones way in the back of the library. And they also had various magazines, including a magazine called Jazz and Pop, which went out of business in the early 70s, but was a great sort of jazz-based, savvy, you know, slightly to the left of Rolling Stone, between Rolling Stone and Downbeat. Very cool record reviews, great writers, and that opened my ears and eyes to jazz. Warner Brothers used to put out these things called Lost Leaders, which were like sampler albums. Mostly double records, called, like called the Warner Brothers Record Show or the Big Ball. And there were various artist compilations with people like Captain Beefheart, Frank Zappa, Little Feet, Van Morrison, you name it. Hearing the Captain Beefheart stuff, especially like from Trout Mask Replica, like the most yeah. extreme Captain Beefheart stuff. Yeah. I loved it immediately. And I sort huh. of, you know, was g- gathering from some of the magazines I was reading that this was like an ultra, ultra uber hip guy that only the real hardcore cognoscenti could even think to get to. And that, that immediately appealed to me with my 
you know, self-consciously outre against the grain outside sensibility. I've always kind of had this, I guess. I mean, the first records I loved were, I mean, Beatles and Question Mark and the Mysterians, 96 Tears was like the first radio single I ever like was completely haunted and transfixed by was 96 Tears, which set me on a path of a lifelong adoration for Farfisa and Vox organs. Okay. Yeah. Um, And then like, Procol Harum, which is a Hammond organ band, and yeah. the Almond Brothers, and you know, became big Almond Brothers and Grateful Dead fans with some friends of mine from St. John's Prep, but gravitated to Beefheart, and then um, you know, through listening, to it, loved Little Feet and Van Morrison, loved almost everything I was hearing, but especially the more sort of radical, cool stuff. And they also got Esquire magazine in the uh, in the St. John's Prep library. They had a thing called the Hot One Hundred, the hundred like hippest, coolest, most influential people in entertainment, politics, you name it. And one year I was flipping through this and they had a picture of Sun Ra, okay, wearing like his typical chainmail helmet and these big round frosted glasses with slits for the eyes. Very striking photo, which I think was also on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. He may have had like a leopard skin cap over the the silver thing. Completely striking. And, And the caption was Sun Ra. Everybody drops his name. Nobody owns his records. (laughs) <laughs> this this was like saying Michael Shore. This yeah. is somebody you need to know about immediately. Like, who the hell is Sunra? And I swear to God, Ben, this was such kismet. About two or three weeks later, I'm doing my usual getting drag clothes shopping or something to this store called Leechmere, which is a long out of business department store chain in the North Shore area of Boston. And Leechmere had one of these do- like 99 cent record bins, and I would always go over there when I had a minute and, and check through. And there in the bin for 99 cents is this album called Atlantis by Sun Ra, yeah. which is an impulse reissue, like, like with a French's mustard yellow cover with this like crazy painting of like Atlantis exploding and sinking into the ocean or whatever. And on the back is Sun Ra in this like splendid garb standing behind a Farfisa organ and just looking to me positively real. I'm like, oh, I am so buying this for 99 freaking cents. Are you and for anybody who knows Sunra, to start off listening to Sunra with Atlantis, this is like going right into the absolute most extreme. The, the song Atlantis is, is a 22-minute oh opus, God. like a, a free-form organ solo for like the first three quarters of it. He, he, he sounds like Cecil Taylor on a bank of Farfisa <laughs> organs. It's like absolutely incredible. <laughs> blew my mind. I mean, completely blew my mind. So that sort of started me off on this path of like, you know, being into that kind of music. So from there, I I went to Fordham University in the Bronx. I wanted to get away from home and be like on my own and ended up going there. And uh, they had a pretty good journalism program, which was my target interest. I could have gone to Columbia. I was offered a partial scholarship, but my parents had friends who had a son who went there who got knifed on the street. Um, and they're no. like, well, you're not going there. So instead I right. went to Fordham, like just in, in, in the Bronx. Right. And I, my parents only knew what the hell they were doing, you know? Yeah. Uh, God rest their souls. But so I ended up going to Fordham and again, joined the school paper there. Briefly worked at WFUV, the radio station where yeah. I worked with John Schaefer. John Schaefer went of on course. to do the show New Sounds on WNYC. He became this hugely influential DJ in the sort of world where world music meets downtown Philip Glass type stuff and also includes people like Peter Gabriel, you know. John was the smart one, you know. John went into radio. I stuck with print. They they had an internship program at Fordham and I lucked into an internship my senior year at the Soho Weekly News, which was a sort of like a competitor to the Village Voice down in Soho that had started in the mid-70s. I didn't know much about it, but, you know, the idea of anything like the Village Voice where 
you know, I might have a shot at being downtown on, on the scene was like exciting to me, you know? It was like an alternative paper. Like in Boston, we had the real paper in the Boston Phoenix. This was like, like that. I'm like, this is like the big leagues. This is New York City. Oh, wow, you know? The first day I walk into the Soho News office on Spring Street, they had a political columnist named Doug Ireland, who was a real character. Doug had slicked down hair, parted in the middle, big owlish eyeglasses, wore suspenders and dress shirts and bow ties. And he had a voice like this. <laughs> and I walk in the office and he's like two desks away from me, smoking a big fat joint. And the <laughs> air is reeking of marijuana. I'm like, oh, I'm going to like this. You know, and he's like, <laughs> I gather he's like saying something, Mario. He's talking to Mario Cuomo on the phone. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Which is like one of it. Yeah. This is before, I think even before Cuomo was governor, you know, this is like, yeah. you know, late 70s. So I'm like, oh, this is perfect for me. And at Soho News, I hooked up with Peter Grosso, who was the music editor, became his intern. Ah. He coined the term Fusac for Fusion Music, which made him like a bit of a local legend. And he's gone on to write wonderful, wonderful books about religion and spirituality. Great guy. And taught me a lot. And let me do my thing, which ended up being I was the guy who compiled the weekly music listings of clubs around oh, the city. Sure. So I would call every single club owner, CBGB's, Max's, Kansas City, places people never heard of, like Tier 3, which is a great little club in Tribeca. And also like Tramps, a great blues club on Irving Place, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, every club you could think of from jazz to rock to whatever. And I would compile the listings and then I would do our version of Voice Choices, which was like music picks, we called it. And I would have a chance yeah. to show off my eclectic taste and write up little recommendations on like a dozen gigs a week or whatever, you know. They kept me on when I graduated and hired me out of school, which was a real lucky break for me and thrilled the hell out of me. Yeah. And I became a staffer there making like, you know, like, like, like a hundred bucks a week or something or 125. It was, it was chump change, but, you know, and I was still living off the campus at Fordham and commuting via subway, you know, yeah. taking the D train all the way down and all the way back. I actually knew all of the club owners right from doing the listing. Yeah. So they would give me free entree to all the clubs. Anything I wanted to go to, I, I could get in for free. Talking heads were already starting to happen. Blondie has already been happening, you know, but this is like the, the full flowering of the New York punk new wave yep. scene. And I was wow. like right there on the ground floor of it. I mean, night after night after night, I ended up getting a place on East 10th street, right off of first Avenue. And from there I would walk down to the Soho news to me, I was like living the life, you know? I mean, really, this was great. And so I did that until the Soho News went out of business in 1982. Among the many friends I made at the Soho News was Merle Ginsburg, who is now, yeah. of course, a culture queen in LA. She was like one of the first panelists on RuPaul's Drag Race. Merle is a, a total sweetheart, brilliant, funny. She went on to MTV News when everybody kind of split up after Soho News and, and dissipated. I ended up writing books. One of the things I had gotten into covering at Soho News was music video, which in those days was really happening at clubs. Places like Danceteria would have TVs yeah. set up everywhere. And oftentimes they would just play random stuff and you wouldn't hear what the audio was. And sometimes you would actually hear what the audio was. And it might be exotic music videos from Europe or something crazy like that. Or it might be performances recorded at CBGB's by people like Pat Ivers and Emily Armstrong, who did the nightclubbing series, which is a very famous early public access cable document of the downtown New York scene. I mean, they would, they had incredible videos, of, you know, straight up performance videos, mostly black and white, up close and personal of the Ramones, Blondie, Talking Heads, television, all the classic punk and new wave bands and lots of other bands nobody ever heard of or, or has forgotten about, you know, but anyway, this, this stuff was all out there. And I was like interested in this and, and started chronicling that and became sort of like a, 
a guy on the music video beat in a way. So when Soho News ran aground, the first thing I thought, well, I need to freelance and scuffle and score gigs. And I did some freelance writing for like The Village Voice and for Rolling Stone and places like that. It was not fun. It was not easy. I didn't like scuffling. And then through like a friend, I started doing stuff for Rolling Stone Press, contributing to their Rock Almanac and their Rock and Roll Encyclopedia. That led to a book deal to write the Rolling Stone Book of Rock video, which was a sort of history. This is, you know, MTV was becoming a huge, huge thing in the world, right? So this is like an obvious commercial in that the publishers wanted. And they saw me as a guy who was qualified through what I had been writing about and, you know, and all that. And I had written some articles about MTV a little bit, you know, the usual in the book did the same thing, taking MTV to task for not playing black music, you know, unless it was the bus boys or, you know a black rock band that fit, you know, the MTV format, right? Which was what they call AOR, album-oriented rock, which is sort of like the sort of corporate follow-up to FM radio and it's like early 70s glory days, you know? It kind of turned into this niche corporate thing. But a lot of the executives, it turns out, that launched MTV came from the world of AOR radio as it happened, you know, which made total sense. So I wrote this book, which was like, you know, the best part of it to me was the pre-MTV, pre-history of music video, which was fascinating to me, which ranged from, there's this guy named Oscar Fischinger, a German artist, visual artist from the 1920s, who made these fabulous little shorts that were synced up, like abstract, pixelated. He would take physical clay and shape it into like tubes and have the tubes marching and dancing. And imagine the labor, right? Yeah. But sync it up to jazz, early jazz or classical. And and, and then it'll be like, you know, geometric forms morphing and stuff, very psychedelic from the 1920s, you know, but brilliant and like way ahead of its time. Stuff like that. And then these, you know, panoramic soundies from the 1940s, which were like very imaginative, little black and mostly black and white early music videos. You know, sometimes there would be a storyline or a plot or something fanciful, or it might just be a straight up performance, you know, but there was all this stuff that was a lot like music videos that had existed for decades before MTV came along that nobody knew about. And I was fascinated by this. And it included movies as well, you know, movies like Alexander Nevsky, the classic Russian Sergei Eisenstein film from the late 30s, which Stalin ordered him to make as propaganda. And he collaborated with Sergei Prokofiev, the great classical composer. It's based on true history in the year 1242, this Russian prince, Alexander Nevsky, pulled off the biggest upset in medieval war history, beat the German Teutonic crusading knights who were trying to invade. Huge upset. And the movie was made as Hitler was becoming a power and scaring the hell out of Stalin, right? So he wanted this movie to rouse the Russian public, right? And it did, I guess. But the, the point of the movie for me was it was a phenomenal exercise in music video synergy. The whole movie, the score of the movie is, is a legendary movie score. The centerpiece of the movie is this, is the battle on a frozen lake where Alexander Nevsky turns the tide of the war and beats the Germans and the Germans, their heavy armor collapses and breaks the ice and that's they, their undoing, you know, and it's, it's, it's just great. And the music is fantastic. I mean, it, it's as rock and roll as classical music gets, you know, wow. that and like, you know, Ride of the Valkyries by Wagner, which to me is like Led Zeppelin. I mean, it is like romping, yeah, totally. stomping, you know, for classical, right? So- I covered all this stuff in the book, you know, and then I covered MTV and covered the whole thing of like, you know, why won't MTV play black music? I interviewed Bob Pittman and, you know, some of the other early executives there and I gave their side of it, you know, and all that. And then I wrote a consumer guide to music video as in home music video, which in those days was in the VHS tapes you could buy, which would be 
concert programs or collections of music videos, right? You know, or it might be, you know, the best of Duran Duran, or it might be Tony Bennett live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada was like, I just checked out everything I could find hundreds and hundreds. And I spent literally like a full year in my apartment screening stuff for this book and writing reviews and giving them like four star ratings, three star, whatever. So I did that book. And then I did the history of American bandstand with Dick Clark was like the last major book I did. I flew out to LA to meet Dick Clark. My mother was like, so thrilled. So the first meeting with Dick Clark, he calls in Jeff Kopp, who was the head of DC Productions Research. He says, Jeff, this is Mike. He's doing the book on Bandstand. And Jeff Kopp goes, oh, congratulations. And Dick Clark says, fuck that. Better him than us. I'm like, the first <laughs> words Dick Clark said to me were, fuck this. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so great. But the book was actually very fun. And I got to interview all these kids who had become sort of media celebrities for a moment in their life because they were f- popular dancers on Bandstand. These were the forerunners, of course, of Club MTV. Remember, 100% right? I was just thinking that. Yeah. Kids like Vanilla, we call it Camille, who was nicknamed Vanilla, right? and all these other kids who became celebrities like, you know, decades and decades later, right? So again, everything old is new again. This is one of the lessons you learn, right? Okay. So yeah. I finally got tired of the whole grind of hustling for book projects. And my wife and I wanted to have a family. Like, I need to have a steady, regular job of some sort. What the hell am I going to do? You know, Merle Ginsburg calls me out of the blue completely unexpected. She's like, hey, Mikey, I'm working at MTV News and I just got landed the gig to do random notes for Rolling Stone. Would you like my job at MTV? And I'm like, well, I really need a job, but I mean, you know, I wrote this book where, you know, taking MTV to task. Are they going to look at me funny? She goes, Mikey, nobody read your book. Get over yourself. It's going to be a great job. Take the job. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll do it. You know? And I went there. And now at that point in time, the department was Jeff Peich, who had been working at Record World, I think, or Cashbox, like a, a billboard competitor yeah, type yeah, yeah. industry magazine. Jeff Peich was sort of running the show. Stu Cohen was there, a woman named Lauren Cardillo. And I think Lauren Correo, who later became a big programming exec at MTV, may have been involved as well in those early, early days. This is before Doug Herzog was even there. And still was strictly yeah. DJs reading stuff. There's no Kurt Loader yet. You know, Kurt didn't come until way later. This is like 1985. This was like the original VJs, you know, I mean, Mark Goodman and J.J. Jackson and Martha. These were the people who were reading our copy. You know, they would have like a little news segment. And, you know, Sting Sting had the famous diss of MTV News, which was like, oh, who's got the new hairstyle these days or something? Yeah, there was some of that. You know, I mean, a lot of it was just like who's who's hitting the road, who's going on tour strictly about artists that the channel was playing for the most part, you know, that kind of thing. I took the gig, and at some point in the middle of all this, uh, Doug Herzog came on board. Probably, I got there in late 84, because I know Doug was there when we covered Live Aid. Live Aid was in 1985. That much I I do remember. Tell me about that day for you. I cannot tell you because I was the one who ended up staying back to mine the store in New York. I didn't go to Live Aid. I'm so happy to hear you say that. Do you know how many times I had to stay back home and keep the roll down the fort? (laughs) You know, Mancini would be like sending me something from the field. I was the one who got, who was elected. I don't remember how it happened, but I know Tim Summer went and uh, Doug was overseeing news. I think he was like director of MTV News or something. And when he came in, he interviewed everybody who was there to decide who was going to stay and who was going to go and who we, who oh, we wow, thought was man. worth keeping, right? One of the book projects I had worked on that ended up never coming out for Rolling Stone Press was a book on Prince. Prince was becoming enormous at that time, right? Prince and Michael Jackson, you know, were the ones who were helping turn the tide and play black music on MTV, right? So, you know, Doug loved the fact that I had these Prince connections. 
thanks to people like Doug, work was fun. I sort of marked out this territory as the kind of weird music guy trying to turn the mainstream on to stuff they otherwise wouldn't be turned on to. And in this case, it was another one of my favorites, uh, Augustus Pablo, the great reggae artist, the master of the melodica, one of my all-time favorite artists, one of my heroes. And Doug, it turns out Doug is a huge reggae fan. Yeah, and Doug yeah. had seen Augustus Pablo perform live before I even knew who the hell Augustus Pablo was. But now Cindy Lauper, when I did my Rolling Stone Book of Rock video, part of the gig was to pick an artist and follow them from conception to completion, making a music video. Guess who I ended up picking out of out of a hat? Uh, Cindy Lauper, doing "Girls Just Want to Have Fun." Oh okay, man, with how Ken, Ken Walls producing it and Ed Griles directing it, and they, they shot it on Gay Street, which is that little weird curvy. Curvy Street in the West Village that like hardly anybody knows even exists. You know, that's where it was just by dumb, dumb luck. You know, Cindy Lauper's like third hit after that was a version of Money Changes Everything, a great, oh, yeah, like yeah. Soho News era new wave song by a band from Georgia called The Brains. I think they were from Atlanta, not Athens, actually. And she had a keyboard player with dreads who played melodica. A melodica. I'm like, aha. I said, Doug, I have a great idea. I want to explain how the melodica came from Augustus Pablo and reggae, you know? And he's like, how are you going to do that? I'm like, I said, I'll figure it out. And, and like, again, <laughs> kismet, again, great timing. Augustus Pablo turns out to be doing a super rare U.S. tour around that time at the kitchen. He's playing in the kitchen, which uh -huh. is like a downtown avant-garde performance space. A very weird choice for a reggae guy to play, but I don't know how that even happened, honestly, but... And I got an MTV crew to go down there with me and film a couple of songs by Augustus Pablo at the kitchen and did this piece. And I, I remember J.J. Jackson read it. He did a great job reading it and said, you know, hey, you know, this the, the, the Cindy Lauper money changes everything. You, caught, you, you may have caught the, the keyboard player playing a solo on this little keyboard he holds in his hand and blows into. It's called a melodica. Sounds kind of like a harmonica. It's a child's toy. Well, there's an artist out of Jamaica you may not have heard of who has turned the melodica into an art form. He's like the Miles Davis of the melodica. His name is Augustus Pablo. He's on tour right now. So I managed to tie it together. You know, this was like a specialty of mine. I was going to say that is so you. Yeah, it is so me. And that's what made life worth living and made it worthwhile yeah. for me. It's like, that's the reward for covering all the Duran Durans and Tommy Two Tones and whatever. John Norris and I, by the way, used to have the greatest knockdown drag out arguments about <laughs> stuff. I love John to death. He's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful, wonderful guy. Great colleague to work with, but it was very easy and fun to push John's buttons yes. by giving him a hard time about being a fan of people like Millie Vanilli or something, you know, yeah. and John would get indignant and defend it. And it, you know, of course he was completely right. I was completely wrong. He would go, Oh, I suppose Aerosmith is more legit because they play their own <laughs> guitars or something, you know? He was completely correct in defending it. And, you know, I think time has proven that he was much more in the right than I was about that kind of stuff. Another favorite person of mine who I got to cover, Ofra Haza, the legendary Israeli, an Israeli singer who originally had done like a sort of world music record. She was a Yemenite Jew who wore a stunningly beautiful woman who wore all this like Yemenite sort of pewter jewelry and, and looked very, you know, exotic and tribal, beautiful. And she scored somehow a club hit. There's this legendary hip hop record by Eric B and Rakim, Paid in Full. 
And yeah. a DJ named Cold Cut did a very famous remix of that. That was along the lines of Pump Up the Volume by Mars or yeah. Grandmaster Flash's Adventures on the Wheels of Steel, like a real mix master special dropping in all sorts of stuff. And Ofra Haza was one of the things that they dropped into this mix, doing her like very Middle Eastern sounding thing. And through that, she got one of her songs from her first, her first album was called 50 Gates of Wisdom. And one of the tracks in that is called Im Nina Lu. And that got remade into a dance club hit. It was a successful hit with like a big whomping beat. And they made a video for it. So I went to like Doug and said, I'm doing a piece on her. And I did it. And I interviewed her at the Park Meridian Hotel. And I brushed up on my Hebrew a little bit. I mean, I'm like the world's least observant Jew. But I brushed up on it and say, you know, Tada Rabah, which is thank you. And he impressed her. And then she would call me like after that. She, she, we got along great. And I'll never forget when I had the, the phone machines in, a, in my desk in 1775 news. And one year I come in and there's a message white flashing and it's Ofra Haza. Hello, Michael, oh, wow. this is Ofra. I want to wish you a Shana Tova for Rosh Hashanah in, that, in her Israeli accent. That was one of my proudest wow. possessions. What yeah. excites me is Ofra Haza leaving me a voice message. You know, what yeah. excites yeah. me was yeah. do a phone interview with Miles Davis talking about oh. the fact that he, he was on a Sting record or Sting was on a Miles record called You're Under Arrest. I mean, I can't remember the exact provenance of this, but I got to talk to Miles Davis on the phone about this. And I'll never forget this standing there. He was on speakerphone and he's Miles Davis doing the whole whispering thing. You know? yeah. And he's explaining something or other. It was just like, I was literally like, gee, Mr. Davis, what else would you like to tell me? <laughs> I, I just remember looking at Michael Axe and we're both going like, that's Miles freaking Davis on the yeah. phone. Oh my freaking God. You know, that's the kind of stuff that put me, you know, over the top and over the moon. Yeah. And I, I have to thank MTV for like indulging me. <laughs> they didn't have to let me do this. You know, they didn't have to put up with this crap for me, to, but I was the guy who would periodically shoehorn in all of this crazy stuff. And when Dave Saromic came on, you know, Dave Saromic and Linda Corradina were both brought in by Doug Herzog as part of the, maturation of news and the making it official, you know, but I still would do these things and keep throwing in my little Mike Shore weird music stuff. You know, I mean, I got them to pay my way to Birmingham, Alabama to cover Sun Ra getting the key to the city in 1990. Oh, right. That's yeah, my proudest think. accomplishment. Yeah. And everything else is like water under the bridge. You know, I ended up doing like two or three different pieces on Sun Ra for MTV News. John Norris voiced the first one, as a matter of fact, and did a fantastic job. And John, by the way, I don't think ever gets his due for being as key to our Kurt Cobain death coverage as Kurt Loder was. John was right in the middle of that. That was a real baptism of fire for all. It was rolling coverage. I forget who yeah. it was who got the call that Kurt Cobain might be dead or whatever. It, it just took off and became this exhausting nobody's going home, you know, we're all right, doing whatever right. it takes to cover this, you know. And John stepped in and, you know, again, proved magnificently that John could handle And He was at heart the pop guy, the Madonna guy, but yeah. could cover Nirvana or you name it, you know, as authoritatively, as sincerely and passionately and appropriately as Kurt Loder or anybody else could. Choose or Lose put MTV on the map as like a serious news entity, I guess, in the minds of a lot of people. Yeah. But I thought we did great stuff before that. And to me, that definitely includes the Judas Priest trial in Reno, Nevada. The gist of this story was that they were trying to blame 
quote-unquote backward mask lyrics in a Judas Priest song for making two teenagers kill themselves in the Reno, Nevada area. This was like a serious, like a PMRC type of attack mm-hmm. on rock music and trying to take down a very popular rock band and blame it for something that seems questionable at best. And like, a that's a hell of a charge to make, you know? We filed almost like daily reports on that, and we took it very seriously. We gave both sides, and here's the prosecution said, here's the defense said. The big highlight when the prosecutors trotted out what they thought was their piece de resistance, which was the actual backward mask portion that they thought did the deed, you know? And I swear to God, when we, when we got that tape and we made sure to have somebody in court recording it, it sounded like if you can picture Rob Halford backwards saying, hey, look, ma, the chair's broken. Hey, look, ma, the chair's broken. That's what it sounded like he was saying. It's like, this is their smoking gun. Yeah. Hey, look, ma, the chair's broken. You got to be, this is completely blows their case to Smith. The band was acquitted. The case was, was thrown out, whatever, you know, however it got disposed of. But the band rock and roll won. Rock and roll won the day. That's right. And this yeah. was like, to me, this was like the emblematic thing of how ridiculous the case was. In the, and, and we kept covering stuff like that. You know, I'll never forget when Michael Azarad came on board. Michael Azarad, who wrote the great book, This Band Could Be Your Life. Michael Azarad sort of, after Tim Summer left, and, and for Tim to go leave MTV News and become an A&R guy at Atlantic Records and discover Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> yeah. Tim wrote his ticket for life discovering Hootie. And for a guy like Tim Summer to discover Hootie is like the least likely thing in the history of least likely things. He's you know? in Hugo Largo, right? Yeah, he did. Hugo Largo was his band, uh, which is like, a, you know, two basses in this kind of strange female singer. <laughs> and a very, again, Not a very Hootie. Trailer. Yeah, totally opposite, yeah, produced by Eno. Uh, totally opposite of Hootie, but yeah, exactly. So uh, go figure that, you know? But Michael Azarad would cover, uh, there was this crazy attorney from somewhere in like Texas or Alabama. I think the guy's name was Don Waller or something. He was pursuing Ozzy Osbourne obsessively. And this is around the time when another, uh, Jack Thompson in Florida launched a campaign against Two Live Crew. We covered, and that was like, I think, late 80s, early 90s. We covered all of these things very, very seriously, attentively, because we saw them as like, you know, legitimate threats to the music that that our audience was consuming, you know, and that our audience wanted to hear. And this was like a real, you know, it was kind of a cause for us to, to be on top of these things, you know. And I thought I thought our coverage of these was all very legit. And so I always sort of bristled at the idea of choose or lose conferring legitimacy on us as a serious news organization. But I mean, of course it did. Tabitha had been an intern with us in the late 80s. She also has a very, 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 very blink and you miss a brief cameo in the Beastie Boys sure, yeah. uh, Fight for Your Right to Party video at one point. And she was a sweetheart who had this great high-pitched squealing laugh that I couldn't even begin to try to imitate. One of the greatest laughs I've ever heard in my life. A real sweet kid. And then she sort of went off and disappeared for a while, you know? And then as we're starting to get choose or lose together, she comes back. Uh, I don't, I can't, now I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I got assigned to go with her to Unitel studio, I guess it was, which is the studio we used over on 57th and 10th, I guess it was. And we would have to walk over there every day to do news tapings. And we were always late. <laughs> I was always walking and apologizing to the, to the crew people at Unitel for being late, always. But I went to do Tabitha's audition. Now, 
I had lost track of Tabitha for a couple of years and remembered her as this like adorable, giggly intern, a real sweet, smart kid, and had no idea what to expect. Literally like about 30 seconds into her audition, I'm like, oh my God, this girl is like, it's just like watching CNN. She's like a professional news anchor. Oh my God. It turns out Tabitha had gone to like Burlington, Vermont, I guess, and has sort of woodshedded at this local station and did, after I learned this from her, this is what I would tell every single person who came to interview with MTV News to, to wanting to be anything, like an intern, a writer, anything. I would say, do what Tabitha did. Go find yourself a small little station in a small market where it's easy to get in on the ground floor. Tabitha did everything from the ground up. If, if the maple syrup was running slow that year, she right. would you know, pick up a, a tripod with a camera and go out and interview a maple farmer. Then go to the state house and interview like, you know, the governor or son. What does this mean for the state economy? And then go back to the station, cut it together into a piece of presented on the news that night. So by the time she came back, she was schooled, you know, in the best school. The best journalism school is doing it yourself in the real world, you know. And I can so vividly picture coming back to the office. Linda's desk was on the left towards the back by the window. There was a file cabinet along the right. Dave was sitting on the file cabinet. And they both look at me and, and Linda goes, so how'd Tabitha's audition go? And I literally <sighs> threw the tape, like I guess it was like a three-quarter tape, threw it on Linda's desk and I went, hire her. She is wow, so yeah. freaking ready. And, and they're like, wow. Next thing I know, she gets hired. Next thing you know, she's butting heads with Bill Clinton in a hallway on, at, at, yep. in some high school in New Hampshire as he's becoming the comeback kid. And she was the one who like got right up face to face with him, you know, and the rest, of course, is history. Hey, it's Benjamin. What with hybrid work, heightened performance expectations, global unrest and economic flux, there's a lot to manage. Most of us need all the help we can get. My company, Essential Industries, is a boutique coaching and consulting firm specializing in individual and organizational transformation, content strategy, and collaboration. If you, your team, or organization needs help creating or communicating effectively, facing uncertainty with confidence, or leading meaningful transformation, visit BenjaminWagner.com or email me at BenjaminBWagner at gmail.com right now. I'd love to help. Now back to the show. When I came on in 95, Michael, you were the managing editor, editorial director. I mean, you were in charge. So at, at some point, things changed as they often do personnel-wise in MTV News. Stu Cohn moved on. Tim Summer moved on uh, into A&R and discovered Hootie and wrote his ticket. I got promoted to managing editor and, and then later became editorial supervisor, which was really pretty much the same job with a, with a, a different title. And the team that we had evolved to include Rhonda Markowitz, Randy Gollin, Abby Kearse was, I think, our first rap slash hip hop reporter. She was totally terrific, easy to work with. Randy was like um, alt rock girl. And Rhonda, I do remember, Rhonda was definitely one of my hires because Rhonda had been a publicist for uh, Polygram Records. And she was, oh, that's I right, mean, of course. It, uh, there was tons and tons, of course, of publicists that I dealt with, all of whom were unfailingly nice. But Rhonda was very, very no bullshit and had a great bullshit detector, you know, as did people like Kurt. And that, that's a very, very 
important thing to have in the news business, especially when you're doing yeah. dealing with like, you know, music news. Rhonda had a way of cutting through the crap, but still being nice about it. Dealt with most of the mainstream rock stuff, you know, like John Cougar Mellencamp types and all that. And proved to be like a like a really great classic throwback sort of bulldog reporter type, you know. After Abby moved on, you know, Josh Cheringel came in and became like Mr. Hip Hop guy, especially during the uh, the whole Biggie Tupac thing. You know, Josh was like right there in the middle of that, had great sources in, in you know, on, on the scene and, and all that. I think Josh went into like financial news and eventually vice media. Yeah. I never saw the financial news thing right. come, but he did very, very well. He's obviously a, a really brilliant, right. very funny guy. <laughs> And then he brought on board to replace him, and- Andrea Duncan, Dre or Dr. Dre, as I used to call uh, her. Yes. She was sort of like, like, like the hip hop version of Randy Garland. Totally sweet, totally easy and delightful to work with, no maintenance yeah. at all. And one day she brought somebody in to visit the office, uh, a, a young up and coming rapper from Brooklyn who she thought was going to be going places and, and was going to sh- show him around the bureau. And uh, it turned out to be a guy you may have heard of. His name was Jay-Z. Um, and I swear. And he was like this kind of like, you know, gawky, nervous, super polite, could not have been more, you know, like I picture my mother meeting going, oh, he's such a gentleman, this kid. You know, he was just really nice. And I, I had no idea, you know, what his future was going to be. I was, you know, no hip hop expert at all. That's for sure. I mean, I, I, I knew what I liked and, you know, we, we had a follow and all that. But Andrea was right. You know, she, she had a good eye for talent, obviously. So other people who were huge in, you know, the evolution, expansion, of MTV News, Allison Stewart, who I believe started off like John Norris as like like a sort of a studio PA type person who would be, you know, off to the side of the camera counting people down to, to, to start segments and stuff like that, whatever, you know, with like headphones on and a, a, one of those things on her belt to like talk on the headphone. And then somehow, I forget how it happened, but she started doing on-air stuff. And again, Allison was just like unbelievably easy to work with. Uh, a natural on-camera talent. I think out of all the on-air, you know, anchor type people that we had, she was probably the best at improv, at rolling with developments in in situations like, for instance, you know, it might be like a VMA pre or post show, or um, maybe like the Beastie Boys uh, free Tibet show in San Francisco, or any situation that was like a live, open-ended thing where you had a vamp and and. Allison was just so, so good at that. She was great. Very easy to work with and a really good segment producer as well. Could cover anything. She did the piece that introduced RuPaul to America from a New Jersey shopping mall. She went to Austin, Texas, I think, to cover one of the very first South by Southwest and did a piece about this new trend line dancing, as she put it. (laughs) And as they told her down there, boot scooting was what they called it. So Allison was at home with like anything and everything. And in my personal estimation, you know, she did one of the two or three best news packages that MTV News ever ever did, which was the piece she did on Los Angeles one year after the Rodney King riots. It was just a beautiful, Mm. thoughtful, heavy you know, lots of dissolve edits and rack focus stuff like then and now kind of things. Just a really powerful, affecting piece. I would put it right up there with John Norris as far as like being able to cover absolutely anything. News had a, had a great way of attracting talent. Patrick Burns, who was one of our first 
segment producers, we did a thing called the Manilow Challenge, which was a really fun piece where we went down to Washington Square Park and he would walk around with a big poster, take the Manilow Challenge. This was because Barry Manilow had done this completely ridiculous full page ad and billboard presenting himself as the greatest entertainer ever. And, you know, we dare you to, you know, to find anybody who satisfies you more musically. Take the Manilow Challenge. We're like, You've got to be kidding me. You know, Barry Manilow? Yeah. And, and so so we've, we, we went and we sort of went with that idea. It was just like a very, very fun piece. One of Patrick's last things that I remember he did for news was uh, at my behest, interviewing another one of my personal heroes, Dick Dale, the surf guitar god, you know, who did the um, Miserly. One of his greatest hits was the opening music in Pulp Fiction. That's Dick Dale, who was like an absolute, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm going to call up another one of Michael Alex's great rock critic uh, statements about Dick Dale, the man hurled thunderbolts. Exactly. He was like, a, like an Olympian God in my, in my personal pantheon and, and, a, and an absolutely unbelievable character. And Patrick lined up an interview with him in, in a parking lot in California when Patrick was out there doing like multiple assignments or something in, uh, in the LA area. And he went out and he found Dick Dale and, you know, Dick pulled up in his RV or whatever and sat there for like an hour or two and it was like Dick Dale talks and plays and talks and talks and plays and talks and plays and talks and talks and talks and plays. And it was just like a, he went on and, and like he, like Patrick would ask one question and Dick would just go for like 45 minutes, which is really how Sun Ra is when you interview him as well. These sort of visionary characters, they just they they do their thing, you know, and that was like absolutely amazing. Mark Doctorow and Matt Anderson, I cannot forget either of those guys, of uh, both, you know, real characters, great, great, reliable producers. Matt did an incredible Carol Channing impression that I'll never forget. Um, it was hilarious. Both, <laughs> of, both of them were like, they were like more on the John Norris pop music Madonna type tip, you know, but, but great guys, again, could, could yeah. do anything. All of these people, all of the writers, all the producers, as much as, you know, Dave Saronic or Doug Herzog or anybody, these were the people who enabled me to do what, people listening to this will probably think is my thing, which is like covering my personal passions and shoehorning that weird music stuff in around the edges of the week in rock and all that. I do believe that I used my position to give a platform to stuff that I thought people deserve, needed to hear and, and talent that was deserving yeah. of wider recognition. I don't think I ever abused my position, but I, the reason I was able to get away with this at all is because all these folks that I just mentioned, you know, did such a great job doing what we had to do, doing the job at hand. You, you, you cannot indulge your personal passions without doing your due diligence first to the job that has to be done, which is like covering all of the, right. the big stars, pushing whatever the channel wanted us to push. I went to all the holiday parties. There are two parties that I will never forget, one of which was the post-VMA party in Bryant Park, which I think was in 1994, it was outside. And uh, the yes. reason that's so memorable to me is because the Soviet Red Army Choir was the entertainment. It was like 55 Russian guys in their uniforms with their hats. <laughs> I was sort of partly responsible for them appearing at the VMAs, backing up this eccentric rock band from Finland called the Leningrad Cowboys, who had these long, like foot and a half, two foot pointy pom pompadours like that could be like weapons, probably like long pointy thing. They're very crazy looking, but they had done something that MTV Europe featured them 
in one of their weekend rock shows, you know, MTV Europe based out of London with people like Steve Blame and all that, they would send us a three quarter inch videotape, like pretty much every week. One week they did a piece on the Leningrad Cowboys and the Soviet Red Army Choir doing some concert somewhere. And they did these hilarious, fantastic cover versions of, of tunes like, you know, Sweet Home Alabama, Sweet Child of Mine, you know, Welcome to the Jungle or, uh, you know, Delilah by Tom Jones. Just rock, all sorts of rock classics. It was very campy and, and funny, and but, but, but also just like great. And I thought this was like fantastic. And like we picked it up and put it on The Week in Rock and Tom Freston loved it. And, wow. you know, and I think I bumped into him like a week later or something. And he was like, where, what, what's that? Where's that red on require thing from? You know, and I told him and the next thing I know, they're <laughs> like, they're like, they're going to be featured on the VMA. So, I mean, I think I may have had a hand in that happening. So that's like, that's another little notch in my crazy belt, you know? And the other party that I'll never forget was the MTV inaugural ball uh, in 92 after Bill Clinton got elected. Yeah. This was a big deal. Ours was like the hot ticket that year, you know, because it was like MTV had never been involved in this. And, and this was like the you know, choose or lose basically helped elect the president, you know? So it was this huge thing. And it was such a big deal that we all got to travel down to it in, in unheated yellow school buses. <laughs> and this is in January, of course, right? <laughs> we were just like shivering the whole, the whole trip down. It was brutal. Wow. But that, it was worth it. We get there and it's in this gigantic room. And I mean, there were so many celebrities, Ben, in this room. It was just like, it was insane. I literally physically bumped into Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just like this, incredible, you know, people you would never in a million years expect to, to, you know, literally bumping into these people. It was like being at like an MTV Christmas party or, or, or something like that. Only it was in Washington. So those politicians that were all over the place, you know, and uh, of course, Bill Clinton comes out at one point and the, the crowd goes nuts. And when the crowd finally quiets down to let him speak, he says, I think you all know that y'all helped elect me president, you know, and, and, and the place goes bonkers. My only thought balloon at that point was looking at Clinton thinking, please don't fuck up. You are the MTV president. That was like an absolutely unforgettable, in incredible night. You know who else was part of the crew? Steve Trekus. Steve was the one man band on remote control, mm. right? The game oh, show. man. Yeah, right? yeah. I was part of the team that brainstormed remote control. Oh, My God. contribution to remote control was the craftmatic bed that was the final round. That yes. was my idea. Because the, 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 why don't we strap them into a craftmatic bed? Oh, beautiful. You know, you know. Perfect. When I was managing editor, I mean, the department got, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. We yeah. had more and more producers come on board. Uh, one of them briefly was John Klein, who went on to launch Buzz with Mark Pellington, yep. which is a very influential show. I mentioned Pellington. Well, you know, my wife, Sue Flinker, came on board and became the sort of den mother to the promo department, which was Pellington, uh, the late Peter Doherty, the late Ted yep, Demi, yep. Uh, Peter Lauer, uh, Barbara Kanowitz, Pellington. Very, all these guys are very creative. Ted Demi, the late Ted Demi, maybe the single funniest person I've ever known in my entire life. Uh, I mean, I've mentioned a lot of people who cracked me up at MTV yeah, News. Yeah. And MTV, Ted, there was one time we went to cover... The Republican convention in San Diego, which was, I think, 92 or 96. I'm trying to remember what year, but it was, it was Dole and Kemp. So naturally, there was T-shirts, Roll, Hemp, right, that were being made. <laughs> MTV T-shirts, by the way, were like, you know, serious hard yeah. currency. We got everywhere we wanted to go by offering free MTV T-shirts to like, you know, Secret Service people for all I know. I mean, security, yeah. whatever. It was, it was incredible. It was incredible. 
But coming back from that, we had to take a van from San Diego back to LA to catch our flight back to New York. And in the van, I know it was Ted Demi, me, and a name you may know, Robert Laforte, who worked uh-huh. in production management for many years. Ted Demi kept giving him crap the whole, I mean, f- affectionate, funny <laughs> crap, but he was calling him La 50, in, you know, instead of La 40. <laughs> I swear to God, I don't think I have ever laughed so hard in my entire life. Like I said, Sue was the sort of den mother to all these crazy people doing the promo. And the promos, of course, you know, Ted yeah. was in those days. Ted was doing the famous Dennis Leary promos yep. where Leary was in like a bombed out empty lot, walking around, you know, riffing intensely about whatever. And it would be an MTV promo somehow. I remember hanging out with Ted and Dennis Leary at different bars and stuff, you know, close to the office, you know, and all that. You know, Kurt came in, I guess it was probably like late 80s or something. And of course, that was like a huge, huge thing for us that the department had its own person. Kurt brought all of this legitimacy from Rolling Stone. He knew all these rock people who knew him and respected, knew him by name and respected him. And that immediately upped our game. You know, bringing in Dave Saronik and Linda Corradino were other steps towards bulking up the department, solidifying the department. I was thrilled to be along for the ride. I felt very fortunate. You know, every year we had an MTV New Year's show. And one year it was done at in the actual building at one Times Square where they, where the ball is on top of that. It's like a narrow yeah. building, right? And it's like about 20 stories, maybe, yeah, not even. Yeah, and yeah. we did the show one night from the little room at the top, right below where the ball is. It's a little tiny studio room, like very small. And it was bitterly, bitterly, bitterly cold that night. And Kevin Seal was one of the, the VJs who was out on the street doing Man on the Street, you know. And Sandra Bernhardt was the other celebrity anchor guest person whatever and at one point she tosses to kevin seal saying kevin how's it going out there are your balls frozen off yet or what and like this <laughs> i guess went out on live tv and i remember doug saying i saw my career pass before my eyes when she said that <laughs> but you know doug was another guy who was like always like putting up with stuff you know and, and he made it so easy and fun to work there and you know and Tom Freston and Judy as well. I mean, again, there's lots and lots of people like this, but you have to have to shout out those two as the absolute coolest people, you know, brilliant, visionary, so cool. Judy was always so easygoing with everything. Uh, And so was Tom. Tom and I, there was a thing people used to do every year. Um, We used to email out, uh, everybody submit your top 10 album list for the year or top 20 or whatever it would be. And they were collated into like one big company wide email. Here's right. everybody. Tom was like a, a, a serious world traveler who had been right. like everywhere. He lived in Afghanistan for a while or yep. something. He's been in Africa. I mean, he was just this incredibly amazing guy and super, super cool. I'll never forget the first time Judy introduced me to him in the elevator. And, you know, I mean, I knew who Tom Preston was and he was like this big tall, you know, physically imposing guy, like a big, you know, he was a big guy. He was built like a, like an athlete or something, you know? And she goes, Judy, this is one of our news guys, Mike Shore. And he goes, Mike Shore, the guy from Soho News. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I was really like, you know who the hell I am? But Tom and I on these year end top albums would always have like the same Afro pop records listed, you know, whether it was King Sonny Ade or Oliver Mittakutsi is wonderful, wonderful. So many great Afropop artists. And of course, another one of my personal things that made me love MTV News and what I could get away with doing there was 
interviewing Fela Kuti, the late great Fela Kuti. Oh, this is another yeah. memorable for me. The memorable interviews are, are my musical heroes. People like Sun Ra going going to Birmingham, Alabama on MTV's dime to interview Sun Ra and record him getting the key to the city, etc. That that, but also doing Fela Kuti and, and Fela, he was on a rare U.S. tour and he was playing. Felt Forum, which was now the Paramount, at the, at the other end from the Garden on 34th and 8th, you know, the, the smaller theater there. This is probably in like 86. And if, if anybody knows the story of Fela Kuti, who was this incredible legendary world music guy from Nigeria, who literally, you know, I used to tell people, you know, you think, you know, rock and roll artists are like tough for doing protest songs? This freaking guy has been jailed like 55 times. He's been beaten to within an inch of his life by Nigeria's army for like calling out government corruption. They raided his compound, killed his mother by throwing her down a flight of stairs, raped like 22 women who then became Fela's 22 wives. Okay. So this guy is a serious rock and roll guy who, you know, and the music is this is a matter of life and death for this guy. I don't want to hear yeah. about, you know, whoever the hell you think is a cool rock and roll. This guy is the real deal, you know? So the piece I did on Fail was basically saying that. Interviewing him was one of the most unforgettable experiences. We're in this, like, an empty ballroom at this hotel. And all of the wives are surrounding us. The fierceness was just off the freaking charts. And in the, I'm sitting there trying to, like, keep my cool. And then in comes Fela. The most beautiful person you've ever seen in your life. I mean, a, just an incredibly handsome, gorgeous guy. Sculpted cheekbones that could cut diamonds, never mind cut glass. Wearing yeah. a, like a Speedo. And that's all he's wearing. <laughs> and this is what he usually... Yeah. He's wearing his, his stage garb was, you know, like a, a, a loincloth practically, you know. And he's like in really good shape, lean guy. I mean, it is like a stunning visual to see this guy. And he's very, you know, cocksure strutting in and smoking a huge spliff. Again, this is like, well, gee, Mr. Cootie, can you tell me? <laughs> I felt like like the, the biggest the biggest geek sitting in front of this guy. Somehow I got through this interview and put a piece together. And this guy is the real rock and roll rebel. And I'll never forget another. Fela did an amnesty tour not long after that, yeah, which yeah, was, I think, yeah. like, might have been the Conspiracy of Hope tour, maybe. And that was like the last tour he did because then he got AIDS and he died. And it was a horrible, horrible tragedy. But I remember that uh, I, I did a piece for that in brought back to my interview. And Patricia Keel sent me a note, which was the page from the program with a picture of Fela. And she wrote on it, I thank you and Fela thanks you. Uh, and I can yeah. barely say that without, I'm ready to cry just thinking about yeah. how much I love um, that guy. Yeah. And that he's dead. And that MTV gave me <laughs> the opportunity to publicize this guy for millions of people, some of whom may have seen this. And, and I don't know what people thought of. They were like, what the hell is that? I'm changing the channel. Or right. my hope is that when they saw that or a piece I did on Sun Ra, that they stopped and watched it and learned something. We did a news story about Alexander Nevsky, educating viewers saying, this is part of the prehistory of music video. You know, we wouldn't be here without stuff like this blazing the trail and laying the groundwork for what we show you every day. You know, and here's what we mean. And we showed 30 seconds of the battle on the ice scene where the music builds to this like pulse pounding crescendo. And the visual is that the German knights who all have these amazing helmets, it's like if you put like, like a metal canister over your head with a flat top and cut out a cross for the eye slits 
right? Oh, right, Very yeah. evil Christian iconography, yeah. right? And each of these helmets was adorned by a knight with like a, a claw from a bird, like an eagle claw or some kind of feathers or antlers from a deer. They were all incredible looking, you know? And that's the bit we showed. And then Kurt comes out of it and says, boy, that German headgear would have sold very briskly at a Metallica concert, you know, which is like the classic <laughs> Kurt Loader, the classic Kurt totally. literate improvised back announce. I mean, he read everything I wrote perfectly, you know, and, and I labored over this 35 seconds to get it down. So I, I didn't, the copy couldn't run forever because that would blow my shot. Right. You know, yeah. so and this is how it always was. You know, I knew Sun Ra was going to be the C block of the week in rock. You know, I mean, I knew this, you know, and, and again, Thank you, Dave Sorolnik, for letting me get away with stuff like that. But Kurt loved it, you know, and, and knew that it was great, you know, and, and and was usually on board with stuff like this. You know, I mean, he was always in favor of educating viewers and all that, you know. But again, he could also then turn right around and have a fabulous duel of wits with Madonna, as, as yeah. so often happened. You know what I mean? I was there that day under the stage at the VMAs next to Radio City Music Hall when Courtney Love decided to climb up the stairs, literally brushing past my shoulder. I was underneath the little stage typing out prompter copy for Kurt saying, you know, coming up, we'll have whatever, you know, just to, just to keep the traffic flow going. I'll never forget, you know, Courtney Love like walks right by and next thing I know she's like busting in on stage and like, you know, and going at it with Madonna. I mean, I was, I, I was not there on stage. I was below the stage behind the scenes, you know, like as I was like for Woodstock 94, you know, I mean, I have so many wow. yeah. amazing stories like Woodstock 94. I'll never forget the first day of Woodstock when it was still sunny before it really yeah. started raining horribly and turning it into this like awful mud fest. Now, I didn't want to go to Woodstock 94 in the worst freaking way. For some reason, I was being very curmudgeonly about it and just hated the idea of going. And then I went, ended up having the time of my life. The first wow. day, the Almond Brothers were playing. And I'll never forget, I mentioned that this is one of my first favorite bands in high school was the Almond Brothers band, right? I'm doing air drums and I look up and like everybody <laughs> on the crew is doing air something to the audience. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. they're probably doing whipping post or something, which is like the classic, you know, yeah, encore yeah. whipping post, you know, everybody's doing air guitar, air, air something, you know, this, this is like one of many, many, you know, amazing moments at, uh, at Woodstock 94, which was, you know, once the rain came and turned it into the mud fest, it was just absolutely Insane. And Michael Alex did what I consider one of the greatest pieces in MTV News history, the piece on the mud people who were like dragging people into this mosh pit in front of the stage, you know, and we just we were watching from a distance, watching this thing grow bigger and bigger with every hour. You know what I mean? And these people who would like strip off most of their clothes and cover themselves in mud. I saw people eating the mud. OK, oh. eating the mud. Yeah, yeah I know. And like. God knows what else was in this stuff. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there are people who could not make it to the porta potty <laughs> who contributed to the mud, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, it was like, oh my God, you know. But, you know, had a had a great time there. I always think of the one with Chris from the Black Crows. Chris Robinson. They had a show got canceled. They got run out of town and they had to do a makeup show and they set up a voucher system to get back into the show. I don't think I've ever seen anybody as stoned as he was in this interview. Okay. <laughs> And the question was, how did the voucher system work? And his answer, I swear to God, was, was a line that was basically, you take your voucher and you vouch. And, and the way he said, you vouch, it was like so out of a Cheech and Chon skit. You know, I mean, it was absolutely classic. But, you know, that was unforgettable to me. There was a legendary Chuck D and Flavor Flavor interview 
around the time when the Batman movies were coming out and getting huge. And everybody was wearing Batman medallions. And this pissed off Chuck D because Chuck thought black folks should be wearing African medallions. Chuck is going on with this for like five straight minutes about people got to be more conscious of Africa. And Batman is like this kind of Hollywood thing. And who really, you know, but, and he finally finishes his rap and folds his arms like, so there, what do you think of that? You know, and Flav goes, yeah, but you know, Chuck, I love the Batman. And Flav like collapses in hysterics. <laughs> and Chuck gives one of these classic, what am I going to do with you? This is what made them like the sort of great odd couple that they were, you know, those are the moments that stick in my mind, you know, that in like, yeah the time Axl Rose came walking through the office, you know, when Guns N' Roses was still a pretty up and coming band, you know, they had, they played the felt forum, their first gig in New York, I believe, you know, I went with my wife, we were completely blown away. That's when Michael Alex coined what I consider one of the great rock critic phrases of all time. He said, uh, about welcome to the jungle. That's not a song. It's a weapon. Right. Yeah, and they, yeah. they played like that, you know, and I'll never forget Axl Rose. This was at, 1775, we were on the 23rd floor because I had my office, which was like right off the newsroom, which is like right in the middle of our area. And I had this legendary door to my office that was covered with all of these wacky news stories. Page three of USA Today would always have these like odds and ends stories around the US. And some of them were like, I swear to God, man arrested for clubbing wife to death with frozen squirrel. <laughs> and they go to the guy's house and he's got a freezer full of frozen squirrels. I'm like, how, what the, my favorite of all time, a British tourist climbed to the top of the great pyramid in Egypt, fell asleep at the top and rolled off to his death, which to me <sighs> is like, yeah, it's like, this the funniest horrifying death I've ever heard of in my life. I'm picturing the guy going, ooh, ow, ooh, 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 ow, all the way down the pyramid, right? <laughs> so I had all these stories like this covering my door. Eventually, I, I scotch taped them to a big giant piece of butcher paper, like brown, like the kind of stuff you rip off a big roll because we had to keep moving offices. And I was like, I can't keep taking these right. things off one by one. So, and I still have that rolled up in like the attic or someplace, but Axel Rose oh, was good. walking through the newsroom and he stopped and he started looking at these, he stood there for like 15 minutes reading all these things, chuckling and going, that's so cool. Oh my God. That's so funny. That's crazy. He loved it. I'm like, only MTV, only at MTV could you have Axl Rose standing outside your door looking at the crazy crap you post on your door, you know? That's a classic, to me, MTV thing. It's so wonderful to hear you talk about the stories and the approaches that really moved you, that really mattered to you, because that was a legacy that was carried forward. Mancini picked that up. And, you know, there was a period of time where I was running the morning news meeting, and I certainly was advocating for that kind of approach, for the education, for the enlightenment, for the odd angle, for the deep connection, for the deep cut. I just love hearing you talk about it. And you should know that at least on Mancini and my dime, we did our best to carry that forward. And to me, it was a fundamental MTV News value. So it's so great to hear you articulate it. And it's almost like I can now better understand where I inherited that value. That's very kind of you to say. I mean, I, you know, I felt very self-conscious about it. But I, I mean, again, I owe a huge thank you to MTV for letting me do it. People like Dave Sorolnik, a huge part of that. I know everybody talks about Dave and what an incredible, amazing producer and leader I can't remember Dave ever raising his voice ever. He was always so eye of the storm. Always, 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 always. You know, and it's like, you always had the sense 
everything's going to be under control because Dave's there, you know, I mean, yeah. no worries, you know, so just amazing, but so many people to thank for, for letting me like, you know, get away. But yeah, you're right. I mean, 120 minutes is a great example. Like we always, you know, MTV always would like set aside some time for that, you know, yeah. and news was always kind of like the people to me, you know, aside from 120 minutes, if there was one place you're going to find something that was like a little bit far afield, a little bit, you know, not yeah. just what MTV felt it had to market, we were the place you were going to find that. And again, there could be, you know, stuff like free your mind stuff. That's like actual hardcore topical issue stuff. Right. We did a lot of that too, which I think is very, 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 very important. Very proud. Anything associated with that as well. But yeah, I mean, just, just for me, I, I kind of consider myself like the weird music guy, <laughs> you know, the guy who did the sort of off the beaten track kind of stuff. And that's what made life worth living for me. If it is a legacy, if it if it worked, it's probably because I was passionate about it. And one thing about MTV, you know, if you could make it there and part of making it there was, you know, doing justice to what had to be done. Well, then you could also pursue your passion. That was a great thing about MTV. And I feel really blessed. You know, I mean, I, I got to spend roughly 25 years, the first 25 years of my career between MTV and the Soho News doing jobs where I felt fulfilled personally fulfilled and had a blast and met all sorts of great, cool, brilliant, influential people. So, I mean, how can I not say a humongous thank you for that? You know, I mean, it's wow. It's just, it's like beyond words. You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News is an essential industries podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts and visit benjaminwagner.com for more episodes and information on our creative coaching and consulting services. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.